0: Hello, and welcome to today's Essential Antitrust podcast. Today we're discussing the new EU and UK distribution rules that will be entering into force. These affect a full range of sectors, from high-tech consumer goods to raw materials and supermarkets to platform businesses. This latest iteration of the rules have been the product of lively debate, often pitting the interests of online commerce against those of suppliers and of bricks-and-mortar shops. Understanding these rules is important for companies even outside of the UK and EU. First, because the strictest major regime often is a template for international firms operating cross-border and wanting a uniform distribution policy. Second, particularly important for U.S. companies doing business globally, as the U.S. has somewhat less restrictive or at least different rules around distribution. So for instance, we use a rule of reason approach which in shorthand means we look at the economic effect and reasonableness of certain conduct in comparison to the potential harm versus the block exemption or rule-based approach in the EU and UK. Third, the EU is influential in other jurisdictions globally. Enforcers often look to the EU for inspiration when faced with new issues. So today I'm joined by Tona Oyen, a partner in our antitrust practice who's based in Brussels. Hi, Megan. And Alex Potter, a partner in our antitrust practice who's based in London. Hi, Megan. So great. Thanks for joining me today. Tona and Alex, I want to start by asking you to sum up the new regimes in a couple of sentences, starting with you, Tona.
1: Thanks, Megan. Very happy to do that. So the new EU distribution rules are captured in an updated version of the so-called vertical block exemption regulation and the accompanying vertical guidelines. As many of our listeners will be aware, Article 101.1 of the EU Treaty prohibits agreements between companies that have an anti-competitive object or an anti-competitive effect on the market. Article 101.3, on the other hand, provides for an exemption from the prohibition under that Article 101.1 if the agreement gives rise to benefits for consumers which outweigh any anti-competitive effects. So the Commission has acknowledged for a while that the majority of vertical agreements, i.e. agreements which are entered into by companies operating at different levels of the supply chain, are generally much less likely to give rise to anti-competitive effects and are therefore typically able to satisfy the conditions of Article 1013. So it's against that background that the vertical block exemption identifies a certain set of criteria which a vertical agreement should fulfill in order to benefit from the exemption under Article 1013. Agreements which do not fulfill these criteria do not automatically violate the prohibition of Article 1011, but an individual assessment will be needed to investigate whether the agreement may give rise to any anti-competitive harm. This legal framework remains unchanged. So the vertical rules continue to be set out in an updated version of the Vertical Block Exemption Regulation and the guidelines, but the Commission has published updated versions of those texts. The new text will enter into force on the 1st of June and there are a number of important changes that will have a significant impact for those companies that are affected by them. For example, the new block exemption regulation and the guidelines include specific rules for providers of so-called online intermediation services. Those are platform-based businesses, which reflect the Commission's cautious approach to online platforms. Second, compared to the old versions. The new texts also provide more flexibility in the area of online sales restrictions, partially to reflect developments in the case law of the European courts. And these clarifications will be helpful for brand owners and others who may want to control online sales. Alex, I suppose similar developments uh, are taking place in the UK.
2: Thanks, Tony. Yes, that's absolutely right. So in tandem with the EU bringing in its new block exemption regulation, the UK has brought in a vertical block exemption order. And so, essentially, it faced the same issue. The rules were running out and it needed to refresh them. And very much as you said, it's followed a very similar approach in most cases, to the approach that the European Commission has taken, I think that's welcome for a whole host of practical reasons. Although I was noticing with um, some amusement that the UK version of the guidelines, which are not yet finalised, but there is a pretty advanced draft that's been published for consultation, managed to take up 140 pages um, versus the Commission's just over 100. Despite the fact that the UK version only applied to the UK, but um, anyway, I'm sure we'll. Um, I think, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, hel- helpful that most of that is consistent, but um, there are few small areas of divergence, and and one of those we'll mention in particular relates to uh, parity clauses and we'll come on to those in due course.
0: Tona, you said that the regime is not changing fundamentally. So maybe let's start with what's not changing in the EU. Yeah,
1: that's right, Megan. So the, the new block exemption regulation and the revised guidelines essentially provide the same framework as before. So the block exemption regulation includes a general framework. Uh, And and the guidelines contain more detailed rules which interpret the provisions of the block exemption regulation, but also help companies in assessing arrangements, vertical arrangements that fall outside of the block exemption regulation. So fundamentally, as was the case before, under the old or the current regime, which applies until the end of of May, an agreement will benefit from the block exemption if uh, a number of criteria are met. First of all, there is a market share based safe harbor threshold, which is maintained at 30%. So this means that the market share of the companies involved in the vertical arrangement, whether that's a manufacturer and a distributor or a wholesaler and a retailer, should not exceed 30%. Second, the vertical agreement should not include any so-called hardcore restrictions. If any of these hardcore restrictions are included in the agreement, The benefit of the block exemption regulation will fall away entirely and in fact there would be a a real risk that the relevant provision would ultimately be seen as violating uh, article 101. The list of hardcore provisions in the updated uh, block exemption regulation remains largely unchanged. For example, RPM or resale price maintenance remains a hardcore restriction. Finally, the block exemption regulation also identifies a set of so-called excluded restrictions which do not benefit from the block exemption, but to the extent they are included in an agreement, they do not take away the benefit of the block exemption for the remainder of the agreement. Again, the list of the excluded restrictions here remains
2: relatively unchanged in the new texts. And just to confirm, that's pretty much the same in the UK version.
0: Okay, thanks so much for that overview. Now let's talk about some of the changes. Tona, we've said that these are subject to much public consultation. What's the most controversial change that's been adopted in the EU?
1: Well, Megan, certainly one of the most heavily debated topics during the Commission's consultation process on the draft uh, revised vertical block exemption related to the treatment of dual distribution. So dual distribution exists where a supplier, typically a manufacturer, brings its products to the market, both by selling directly to end customers as well as via independent distributors. Dual distribution, therefore, implies a setup where the supplier is competing with its distributors at the retail level, but not at the manufacturing level. And it is therefore said that dual distribution has both horizontal as well as vertical aspects. So generally, the block exemption regulation does not cover horizontal agreements. Dual distribution has, however, always been an exception to this rule in the sense that dual distribution arrangements can benefit from the safe harbor provided by the vertical block exemption regulation as long as the market shares do not exceed the 30% threshold and as long as there are no hardcore provisions in the uh, agreement. Two changes, however, are introduced uh, in relation to dual distribution by the new rules. First, where the old rules applied uh, this dual distribution exception to arrangements between a manufacturer and a distributor only, The exception has now also been extended to cover both wholesalers and importers. Second, the new rules also introduce an important new limitation in the sense that information exchanges between parties in a dual distribution arrangement are explicitly excluded from the exemption unless the information exchange is, and I quote, directly related to the implementation of the vertical agreement and is necessary to improve the production or distribution. So this clarification implies that an individual assessment of the purpose of information exchanges in the context of a dual distribution setup will be required to determine whether the block exemption actually applies. The Commission has included helpful additional guidance for this assessment in the updated version of the vertical guidelines. For example, the guidelines include an indicative list of information that the Commission considers to be directly related to the implementation of an agreement. The guidelines also helpfully acknowledge that internal information barriers can mitigate concerns around information sharing in situations where the block exemption would not apply. Other than dual distribution, another notable change uh, in the new rules relates to providers of online intermediation services, so platform providers. Under the new rules, providers of online intermediation services do not benefit from the exemption in a dual distribution setting. So that means that if an online platform operates a marketplace for business users, but also sells products in competition with those business users, its supply agreements will not be block exempted. Amazon is certainly an obvious example that comes to mind here, but this rule will also apply to small platforms.
2: Again, due to the consistency between the two documents, the same issues do arise in the UK. There's been the same extension of the block exemption to wholesalers and importers and not just manufacturers, which the EU rules have introduced, and information exchange is covered uh, and exempted where it's generally vertical. So similar principles there. I think there is one difference, and it's a significant one under the UK order, in that there's no explicit exclusion from protection for online intermediation service providers or so the platforms. Um, and so to that extent, it seems that the UK regime is more permissive in this respect.
0: Alex, I believe parity clauses or MFNs, so in other words, requiring a company to offer the same or better prices or conditions to the other party as it offers on certain other sales channels, also caused significant debate, and that that's one area in which the UK has taken a different direction from the EU.
2: Yes, that's right, Megan. So parity clauses, the new label for most favoured nations clauses as once were, um, essentially Uh, You won't offer anyone else a better deal than you offer me. And pretty common in some areas of the online world, or at least were. And economists have long analysed these clauses as having both pro-competitive but also anti-competitive effects, depending on the nature of the clause and, uh, and prevailing market conditions. And I think one um, former CMA chief economist notably said they had all the downsides of resale price maintenance and none of the upsides. So I think it has been a sort of antagonistic approach in some areas of Europe for some time. And in the absence of, of sort of really guidance to fill the gap at the EU level, historically, this has led to national authorities within the EU, including the UK, when it was a member state, taking different views. And so... Uh, up to now, though, um, under the the you know the the version of the block exemption in the EU that's about to expire, all types of parity obligations were block exempted, and that that applied in the UK as well as it was a member state. Um, so the new rules in both jurisdictions do provide for a slightly differentiated approach, depending on what sort of parity clause you're talking about. And they make distinctions along a number of parameters. The first, they talk about wide parity clauses, and these relate to conditions offered on all other sales channels, including competing online platforms. So a parity clause that says, you must offer me the best prices you would both on your own website, which is a direct sales channel, but also on other third-party sales channels, like another hotel booking platform, for example. And then contrast that with narrow parity clauses, um, which only relate to direct sales channels. So you offer me the best price as between you and me, and you won't undercut me on your own direct um, website um, when selling to consumers. So under the new EU version, the block exemption is going to be narrowed in scope by excluding wide retail parity obligations imposed by online platforms, so by OIS providers from the block exemption. So what does this mean? It means that if you've got a, a wider clause, as just explained, which is a retail, uh, relates to retail activity, so um, and uh, it will be excluded from block exemption. So it's not hardcore, it doesn't prevent the block exemption from applying, um, but it won't be covered by the block exemption. Um, and so you won't have any certainty there and you'll need to do um, a case-by-case assessment. So the UK is taking a tougher stance in keeping with its previous enforcement practice. And it is insisting that, in fact, all wide retail parity clauses will be viewed as hardcore. So in other words, presumed illegal. uh, And in fact, they'll prevent the UK block exemption order from applying at all. It is a difference in approach there, which could be significant. Uh, Having said that, a lot of large online platforms will have been facing this issue for some time. And so it's not going to change too much to the the risk factors that they are facing, because as I say, um, enforcers have been targeting wide clauses for some time. Uh, But the change will be relevant for smaller players and smaller platforms um, who um, now know that their parity clauses, in the event that they're able to require suppliers to uh, accept them, uh, will no longer be automatically safe. Now, the EU guidelines do provide a new section on guidance uh, for the assessment of parity clauses, and that's going to be welcome, I think, in, in either case.
0: And, you know, I'll add briefly that in the U.S., MFNs are back in the crosshairs again, although they are subject to the rule of reason, meaning they're not automatically illegal or per se illegal, but rather evaluated for their impact on competition on a case-by-case basis. MFNs continue to appear in challenges to various online platform content, with plaintiffs seeing mixed success. So in the loss column for now, at least, the Attorney General of D.C., is challenging Amazon's policies that are alleged to deter third-party sellers from offering lower prices on and to competing online marketplaces. A federal court in DC granted Amazon's motion to dismiss in early 2022, but the attorney general has asked for reconsideration of the case which the US DOJ has joined, TBD on whether the court will actually rehear the case. By contrast, in the win column, again for now, in May of this year, A federal court in Washington state declined to grant a motion to dismiss a complaint against a video game distribution platform for requiring video game developers to enter into MFNs, preventing them from selling through retailers or other online platforms for less. Doesn't mean that the developers will ultimately win at trial, but they've gotten further than the Amazon plaintiffs at this point by defeating a motion to dismiss. So the bottom line is that the treatment of MFNs in the U.S. courts continues to be in flux. So now turning to selective distribution, where a supplier selects distributors on the basis of specific criteria. In recent years, this has become a hugely popular way for brands to control the way their products get to consumers. Have the rules changed there?
1: Yes, Megan, to to some extent. So the rules in both the EU and the UK on, on what suppliers can require from online sellers have become quite a bit more generous. So for example, Under the old rules, it it used to be necessary that the selective distribution criteria which uh, a manufacturer set for bricks and mortar and online retailers had to be equivalent. That's the the, the so-called equivalence rule. So both the new EU guidelines as well as the uh, UK guidance now make clear that this equivalence is no longer required. provided or so so long as the the different criteria do not have as their object to prevent the effective use of the Internet. So there there is scope for suppliers to impose requirements that are specific to the online environment. For example, requirements to cover the costs of returns or the use of secure payment systems. Also, the uh, updated guidance makes it clear that it is not necessary for the selective distribution criteria to be transparent although it remains, of course, very much the case that uh, transparency increases the likelihood of the criteria being considered objective, which is a necessary requirement for the selective distribution system to be legal.
2: So there have been similar changes and clarifications in in relation to selective distribution. The rules are essentially the same under the UK order. And there have also been changes and clarifications in relation to exclusive distribution, both in the EU Uh, and the UK versions. And so we've now got this concept of shared exclusivity. Uh, So in other words, whereas previously the rules allowed you to have one exclusive distributor in either defined territory or defined customer group, and you could then agree that you would not grant anybody else the right to sell actively into that reserved area whether it's a territory or customer group, now um, it's possible to actually grant that degree of exclusive protection to more than one uh, distributor. This is an area of, 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 I'm not sure whether it's intended divergence, but I think both both the EU and the UK rules started off talking about appointing a limited number of distributors. The EU rules, as enacted in the end, talk about up to five exclusive distributors um, per territory or customer group, whereas the UK version of the the order, when it was passed, still talked about a limited number. So whether there's really a difference there in practice is not clear, but um, in the EU, you've got a a, a fixed number applied there by statute, uh, whereas there's perhaps a little bit more room to discuss, although I'm not convinced there'll be that much difference in practice. So that's possible, and I think that's welcome, albeit that it may not be um, attractive to to all um, levels of the supply chain. And so the new rules also uh, give some greater definition on what active selling includes, because that's always been the um, the, the key differentiator as to what was permitted and what was not permitted. And particularly in an online world, that's not always completely clear. But the new um, guidelines now talk about active selling including a range of things, but in, um, but such as using a domain name corresponding to a territory other than the one in which the distributor is established, and then I think also providing specific language options other than English, which are not typically used in the country that the distributor has established. So two examples there. Also, I think, using online advertising tools which target specific territory. So that's another example of sort of of an online sort of um, definition for what active selling means.
0: So, you know, for what it's worth in the U.S., territorial or customer category restrictions on dealers are seen as less problematic under the antitrust laws. And they actually received little attention from regulators. So this is a real area of divergence between the US, UK and EU. So now back to you, Tona, are there other changes relating to online and marketplace sales restrictions that we should talk about here?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. I'm sure we we can't cover all of them in, in great detail today, but there are a number of other changes relevant in the online context. So, for example, the new rules now allow suppliers to prohibit distribution of their products on specific online marketplaces, uh, unless such a restriction would function as an outright ban on Internet sales, which is not allowed. That, That has been clearly established by the EU courts. Secondly, the guidelines also allow dual pricing, meaning that a supplier can charge different prices for the same product, depending on whether it will be resold online or offline as long as the price difference rewards an appropriate level of reseller's investment and does not result in the effective restriction of online sales, which, as I mentioned earlier, is not allowed. Finally, the block exemption also allows online advertising restrictions to the extent that they don't prevent the effective use of an entire advertising channel. So, for example, there cannot be a general ban on the use of search engines or a general ban on the use of a price comparison website.
0: Of course, there are a lot of changes. And as you said, Tona, we really can't cover them all here. But before we finish, are there any other important areas of change that people should be aware of? Alex? Well, let's
2: pick up on a a couple of other sort of divergences um, between the UK and the EU rules. And I think in the EU block exemption, tacitly renewable non-competes for more than five years, um, have been taken out of the excluded list. Uh, what does that mean? It means that um, uh, historically, the rule was that you could only have non-compete restriction sort of covered by the block exemption if it lasted for no longer than five years. Uh, however, if it was indefinite or if it re- was renewed tacitly just without anybody actively breaking that, it was taken outside the protection of the block exemption. Um, so. Tacitly renewable have been, I think, put back in so that they are block exempted if the buyer can realistically terminate the non-compete after five years. Uh, so in other words, as long as there's a termination right, it's fine, even if it's tacitly renewable. However, the UK has maintained the inclusion of tacitly renewable non-competes beyond five years as an excluded provision. So it's just a, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it makes a difference in practice um, as to how agreements are drafted. And not sure there's a particularly good reason for the divergence, but there you go. And perhaps also um, worth noting that the UK version of the exemption, the block, the UK order, has taken the opportunity to introduce a more stringent requirement on provision of information to the CMA about vertical agreements. A slightly curious one, this. I think both authorities have general powers to demand pretty much whatever information they want, and they um and they can impose penalties if you don't give it to them. Um, normally those penalties are pecuniary uh, and amount to fines. In the UK order. In addition to including a, an express sort of requirement to comply with a request for information within a period of days, 10 working days, the order also says that if you fail to, to respond in due time, then the CMA has the ability to cancel the effect of the block exemption as it applies to your agreement. So essentially to, to remove the protection block exemption. So it's a slightly curious sort of difference in approach there, but one that, that obviously indicates that the CMA is going to be... Taking seriously any sort of investigations into vertical agreements, and we'll have a relatively big stick if you if you drag your heels and, and don't reply in time.
0: So, Tona, a last word from you on any of these topics.
1: Well, perhaps a, f- a final flag from me, Megan, on on the topic we haven't had the time to address in, in any detail today, which is agency. I, I think it would be inappropriate not to mention agency at all. Uh, and I think the flag I would I would make is that the uh, the, the rules on agency. And in particular, their application to platform businesses have become very complex. So my message really is that any business which has up to now taken advantage of the agency rules, uh, in particular in the digital context, is uh, certainly well advised to uh, seek specific advice on on the new regime uh, in this particular area.
0: Well, thank you, Tona and Alex, for an informative and lively discussion. So a few final thoughts here. Both in the EU and the UK, there'll be a one-year transitional period until 31 May 2023 for agreements enforced prior to the expiration date, which gives businesses a one-year grace period in which to adapt their distribution practices as necessary, after which those vertical agreements will need to comply with the new EU block exemption and or the UK order. If you'd like to talk through what any of this means for your specific business, don't hesitate to get in touch We've also published a blog on these developments, which you'll find on our risk and compliance blog. And please do continue to send your suggestions for future podcasts to Antitrust at freshfields.com. In the meantime, our next episode will focus on antitrust in labor markets. Thanks for your time to listen to us today.